you're following along with the podcast, you know that in the last episode we talked about the explorers, the people who came to the New World, starting with Columbus around 1492-1493, and uh, continued to explore the continent. During that time period, uh, we looked at Champlain, who was exploring up north for the French. We looked at uh, Tavaca, who got lost down in the south, out about the bay for Spain. And then we, again, also looked at Columbus, who sailed for Spain, got mixed up in Portugal, and so forth and so on. And that brings us to uh, about 1607, we'll say, where John Smith and uh, some other people arrived in the Jamestown colony. And then we can also jump forward to 1620 when the uh, those in the Plymouth colony arrived as well. This is an intense period of time in which people started to move across the ocean, this great ocean, and uh, set up shop, so to speak, in the New World. These were English-speaking people. They were not the first ones to arrive. That's uh, one of the misconceptions that students often have. But again, let's go back to the main theme that I, I keep referring to throughout all of this, these podcasts. Why in the world are we reading the content supplied by these individuals and a course on literature? Before we can begin to answer that question, let's look at a little bit of background. Again, Columbus, 1492, we looked at Champlain, we looked at Devaca, and if you look at the dates on those, you'll see that essentially students come to a class like this and they have this expectation of, okay, Columbus arrived, and then the pilgrims. <laughs> they they kind of skip over the entire history that takes place in the meantime. There's over a hundred years of history in the year. We have the Spanish expanding into the West and then sort of coming back across the Great Plains. The Spanish had, again, of course, been here for over a hundred years. We also have the Portuguese in uh, South America. This is due to, you know, going all the way back to the Treaty of, and I might say this wrong, the Treaty of Tresillas, which is a treaty that essentially divided the New World into two halves. And then, you know, this was later renegotiated and uh, returned to and looked at. But basically, you have, you know, Spain and Portugal fighting over this territory. You get France in there at one point. Um, There's some really awful stories, for example, of French Huguenots trying to settle in Florida and being run off or murdered, I should say, by the Spanish. So there's a long period of time where all of these different countries are vying for position in the New World. And then on top of that, you get the English. And when the English come across, um, they're not settling into territories that other people haven't already been to before. So for example, uh, in the Jamestown colony, when they set up shop, there was a bit of a belief that uh, among the native peoples, that these people had come to that territory in order to avenge some Jesuits that had been killed uh, in the past by the Native Americans. So Native Americans knew about Europeans by this point. This was you know, not something brand new. This is not, you know, that they just fell out of the sky and fell into this territory. Absolutely not. That sets up, again, a little bit of background, a little bit of context for you uh, as far as this reading goes. But now we have to move into other questions as well. Before I get to the reasons that these individuals are writing their accounts, I want to talk about one quick thing. Again, if you've been following along since the very start of the course and you've been doing your reading, this is probably the most difficult reading you've encountered. The reason is, is because this is the first reading you've encountered that's actually in English. The Native American myths were not in English originally. They were translated into English at a later time. Um, we looked at something written in Spanish. We looked at something written in French originally, uh, so forth and so on. And so these, again, were translated into English. And they were translated oftentimes with a view to a modern ear. 
Smith and Bradford are writing in an older form of English, but this is not to be confused with Old English. Old English would have been much, much further back. Uh, we're talking of Beowulf. If we get to Middle English, we are starting to look at people like Chaucer. Um, that's a little bit easier for a modern ear to understand, but this is still considered modern English. It's just an older form of it. The difficulty oftentimes would be things like the spelling and the syntactical structure inside the work. If you're having trouble with the spelling, and some of it's been updated inside the text, if you're having trouble with the spelling, try pronouncing the word out loud because you might surprise yourself. Oh, that's what that word is because you know now that I hear it, well, I get it. Um, also keep in mind, this might help you to get past some of those spelling issues. Spelling issues, I'm putting air quotes on that. They did not have uh, the widespread use of dictionaries at this time. This is, uh, English language is still going through the process of being standardized. And so writers would essentially say, well, this is what I think it sounds like, and I'll just spell it in this particular way. Um, that was a process that was starting to take place at this time, but the dictionaries, as we understand them today, were still quite a ways down the line. The other thing is, again, that syntactical structure. Yes, there are run-ons in here. Um, John Smith really seems to love his run-ons. You just have to kind of barrel through. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, just you know, read it out loud, use reading strategies to try to understand it. After you develop an ear for it, it's not as difficult to understand. It's sort of like Shakespeare. You know, Shakespeare is difficult only the first couple times you read it. And once you get used to it, you can read it with no issues whatsoever. It's the same sort of idea. But try to become engaged with it because that helps you to push past the language aspect. this background out of the way, we need to ask ourselves the question, why are we reading about Smith's journey and Bradford's journey and Freethorne's journey? Why are those things important in a course on literature? And the answer, of course, is what I had mentioned before, that in this particular geographic location at this particular time, these are the things that people are writing about. We can't just skip to the good stuff. We can't skip forward to, you know, Poe and Hawthorne and Whitman and Dickinson. Instead, we have to concentrate on, again, during this time period, these are the things that people are saying. And I do admit that's a really unsatisfying answer, and it does make me feel a little weird presenting that as a justification. So instead, I want to layer something else over top of it. Before you could take a class like this, you had to take English 111 and English 112. And in those classes, we did study um, the art of you know, establishing a purpose uh, and writing to a particular audience and using rhetoric in order to convince that audience, because essentially 111 and 112 are just about um, convincing people with words. And that's exactly what we're doing when we read Smith and when we read Bradford. We're reading people who want to convince their audience of certain aspects of their lives or their journeys. And I think that that's a more satisfying answer because that gives us um, a tool that we can use even in the present, even though this goes above and beyond, you know, just, just simply reading people, it traces into the, the modern era as well, because we can look at some of the things that they're talking about and think about how they might apply into the state. Getting a little bit ahead of myself, though. Let's go back to Smith's purpose. I would say you can divide his, his purpose into two main uh, categories. Category number one is that he wants to convince his audience, which would be Europeans, that he is well-suited to travel in the New World. 
He was a map maker, a car, excuse me, a cartographer. His maps were really, really good. You look at his map of the Chesapeake Bay, I would dare to say that you could get in a boat today and have a fairly successful you know, time navigating that area because it's so eerily accurate. So he wants, again, to convince people in Europe that he is very apt at traveling in the new world and that he's um, a, a well-suited choice to that activity. In fact, part of his audience happened to be the, uh, the uh, pilgrims themselves because he wanted to travel with them to the new world. Um, instead, they picked Miles Standish for that role, but that's, again, at least in the background. The other part is social mobility. John Smith was interested in uh, what could be described as a kind of meritocracy. He was not a nobleman. And in fact, I would dare to say that the nobleman that traveled with them to the Jamestown colony did not like him. And so in several different instances, they tried to find reasons to hang him. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. They just wanted to get rid of him and they thought about killing him. Um, there's some argument to be made that somebody tried to assassinate him. At one point, his uh, powder on his belt was set on fire. And uh, that's, you know, it was lit, it burned, and that's one of the reasons that he was actually sent back to Europe because he was so grievously injured. So those are his projects. He, again, wants to convince people that he should be sent back, and two, because he wants a bit of social mobility. That brings me to William Bradford. What are, you know, what are the reasons that he happens to be writing? Well, one of the main ones is because, as your book says um, on page 143, uh, Bradford clearly sought to affirm the vital role of the pilgrims in both the English Reformation and the settlement of New England. And he's writing this in 1630. And in 1630, you have Puritans that are showing up. And uh, Bradford's group has been there since 1620. Now, again, in um, 1620, they show up, you know, they, they have this struggle to, to be able to set up shop. With that in mind, Bradford's essentially writing their history so that they could remember it. And he's also writing the history in order to justify what he sees as the position of his uh, his group of pilgrims in the eyes of God. So he is attempting, again, to justify the fact of sort of divine choice of these pilgrims. This is one of the reasons why um, he spends some time toward the beginning of the excerpts that you've read, justifying the trip across you know, the ocean but he also spends time, for example, on page 150, talking about, I guess, what we could consider sort of strange episodes, where he talks about this sailor that was teasing the people, the pilgrims themselves, and uh, the sailor was stricken with the disease and then thrown overboard. Right now, that might seem like an odd episode, but this is essentially Bradford saying, look, God is on our side, and uh, God smote this young man, and uh, we had to throw him overboard rather than any of us being thrown overboard. So that establishes some of the main reasons why these individuals are writing, and it gives us a reason to want to read them in turn, because again, we're looking at what they're doing with language. They're trying to move through you know, social ranks, or they're trying to establish the reasons that their colonies exist in the first place. With those goals in mind, let's evaluate whether or not they achieve their purposes. Let's start with Smith. Now, we could cover a lot more ground than we are. I'm just going to give you a couple of quick examples. Clearly, this is my particular argument. Keep all of those things in mind. Uh, some historians, for example, disagree. They think that Smith exaggerated or outright lied. Other historians seem to vindicate him by some of the things that have been found at the Jamestown colony. Again, he's going about self-promoting. Smith is. So he does say things like, I helped other people to build their homes before I built my own home. But at the same, uh, on the same token as well, we have to admit that from, for example, pages uh, 126 through 127, 
when he's captured by other individuals, by the, the uh, um, Powhatan individuals, and uh, Powhatan himself, and keep in mind that this is both the group and the, the head of the group, um, that he manages to talk his way out of this situation using his compass, right? He displays, as he says in 127, demonstrated that the globe-like jewel, the roundness of the earth and skies, the sphere of the sun, moon, and stars, and how the sun did chase the night round about the world, and so forth and so on. Let me go ahead and kind of call him out on this, sort of like I did with Columbus in the last episode. The reason he likely survived is because they decided that, one, he must be perhaps one of the best warriors among them because he, he had held them off for a time period, and he always seemed to be the one trying to negotiate with them. Um, and two, they knew that they could use him as a, a sort of pawn in their interactions with the people who had shown up. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, Europeans had been coming to these areas for quite some time. So these native individuals were not unfamiliar with them. And they knew that they had technology, the Europeans had technology that they would want and that they could use. And so rather than just coming in wholesale murdering everyone in Jamestown, although they, they did round them off and uh, keep them from leaving, which led to the starving time, but that's a slightly different story. Rather than just outright murdering them, as they had done in the past, what they decided to do is to try to negotiate. And Smith seemed like a good um, sort of pawn in that game. I'm not totally convinced that he knows that he is a pawn. I think he honestly might think that they didn't kill him just because he's such a cool guy, um, based on some of the other stories that are out there about him. That might not be so far off the, you know, the, the truth here. But again, that's sort of shameless self-promotion you know, he's involved in this, I guess we could call it an international exchange between these individuals um, because he represents European traditions and they represent those of, you know, people in North America, specifically around the Chesapeake Bay. But I would say that he is successful in doing this because he he does show, well, other people like uh, George Cassan, who is mentioned on 126, have been captured and killed. He does find a way somehow to survive. With Smith out of the way, that brings us to Bradford, and Bradford is more of a mixed bag. There are some things here that do indicate that his purpose is indeed a justifiable one, uh, that he his people are chosen of God, but there are also some underlying reasons uh, for those, um, those presentations. Let's look at first page 154, where briefly Bradford mentions that they have found uh, ground that's been cleared previously by Indians, he says. This ground was cleared um, and probably not in use, and this is just sort of an in, a, uh, inductive guess based on some of the evidence that we have, historically speaking. There seemed to have been a plague that had passed through these individuals that was transmitted by Europeans who had come at a point prior. So if there was ground that's untended, that's probably because the people had been very sick or were very sick at that particular time. He also mentions a grave, so there's you know a little bit of evidence for that as well. So it might seem on the surface like, wow, this is providence, but underneath there are some other social reasons. As well, if we jump over to 160, this is something else that really makes this case. They landed in a spot that they weren't supposed to be in, that they were actually supposed to be further south, but they tried to reach that location and they couldn't, so they went back to the north. Um, and so when they went slightly to the north to Cape Cod, you know, they get off their boat and they, they seem to land in this one location where there are uh, two native individuals who can speak with them. And that's because these individuals had traveled to Europe before and had been returned. 
So, you know, the, the sort of needle in a haystack location that they managed to find, yeah, that's, that's quite eerie. That's uh, uncanny that they could find this particular spot. Um, now, that's not to say that, you know, some of the native peoples didn't go find them and bring them, but that's not specified here. So somehow they ended up in a general location where other people could indeed speak their language and communicate with them. But this also goes back to another thing. He does tend to leave out information. Now, this is based on the excerpts that you have, but if we look at page 157, he's been talking about, you know, some of the events that have taken place basically from late November through sort of mid-December. Um, if we get you know, down through 157, I do want to sort of challenge you to find anything about his wife in here. And the reason that I put out that challenge is because Dorothy Bradford either fell off the boat or jumped off the boat on the 7th of December and died. It was very cold, as he notes inside of his text, but he does admit that. Why would he admit it? Because, of course, he wants to present himself in a certain way to be able to justify the record and the history that he's trying to present in the certain way that he's trying to present it. So he does leave out, or at least elide, certain information from this particular text. This might be a well-known event to the people who are reading it. They might you know, know, again, what happened to Dorothy, but uh, he's he doesn't take care to include that in his particular history. One other thing that we can talk about, and this is sort of tangential to his purpose, but it is largely very important, is uh, what's been called now the Mayflower Compact, which is on 158. This is important because from a social perspective, he basically said, okay, we were supposed to be further south, like I said just a second ago, but we weren't. And so I'm not quite sure if our charter covers where we are. So instead of you know, relying on the fact that our charter might not be valid any longer, we're going to kind of come up with a social compact. People have called this one of the first truly American documents, and I think that that's very apt. Um, if you look at it about halfway through, they're talking about framing such just and equal laws that uh, they themselves find uh, to be to their, their liking. That brings me to the last thing that I want to say as concerns, again, really the three individuals that we're studying. We spent a lot of time talking about Smith and Bradford and their purposes, and did they achieve those purposes or not? Now I want to talk a little bit about Freethorn. Mr. Rogers used to say that his mom would tell him during a catastrophe of some sort to always look for the helpers. These were the individuals who were running toward the danger, who wanted to help other people. Um, they wanted to overcome the harm that some very sick individual had done to others. I would say that Smith and Bradford are maybe not quite helpers. I don't know that they are you know, necessarily going in to, to rescue people, but they certainly are. Um, Smith is helping to organize the colony. Uh, Bradford is helping to keep people on track, and you know he records his role in that in spite of the fact that he's not quite self-promoting as much as Smith is. But then if we look at Freethorn, we have a person that's in similar circumstances, not the exact same circumstances, but similar circumstances, and uh, this individual just cannot cope, absolutely cannot cope. Uh, he starts to rant. I don't know how else to call it, you know, and I have every sympathy for him, but he starts to rant about cheese at one point. He starts to, you know, kind of go on and on and on to his father and mother. Please, if you're going to send cheese, make sure you organize it in this way, because if you don't organize it in this way, all these bad things are going to happen. And it's very clear that this is a hungry, cold individual again, who just can't cope with the circumstances. So if you're going to ask yourself, why are we reading these works? 
it's because they're about human nature and they're about human nature in a very difficult circumstance. Uh, we can very clearly say about all three men that they were not in an easy place, that they had made a very difficult choice to do something that might be considered impossible, uh, that certainly cost the life of uh, Freethorn because he died not long after this letter, or that's what they, that's what they think. Um, but Smith and Bradford both endured and endured for different reasons and in different ways, but they did endure. And so we can read these works, you know, if not from a literary perspective, I would even say from a management perspective, if you're trying to figure out how to organize and, and help people, um, these are works where you can look at what they did and say, okay, this was a smart leadership choice or this was a bad leadership choice. So this goes above and beyond just, well, this is what people were writing at this time. And it is instead, what can we get out of it? How do we see it? How do we compare these to one another? What were their projects? These were living people and they were writing out of their own lived true experiences for various reasons. And just to see them as only what people were writing about in a certain geographical location at a certain time, I think would be a disservice, which is why I want to wrap back around to that here at the, toward the end of the episode uh, by pointing out that uh, that's not a very justifiable answer. That's not a very good answer and that there are better ones to be found. That brings me to the end of this episode. In this episode, we've covered some individuals who not they did not want to just go and explore. They actually wanted to uh, visit this location and set up shop and and permanently set up shop. Smith was not as successful as Bradford. He, he was sent back, but uh, back. But Bradford was very successful, and his legacy lives on to the present. By the way, call your attention to this very quickly. Smith was here in the South and Jamestown before. Uh, the Pilgrims set up shop in 1620, and then the Puritans arrived in 1630. So this sort of idea that we have of Thanksgiving representing the first interaction between um, English-speaking Europeans and the Native Americans is, is just quite frankly false. Um, I always like to clear that up because people come in and say, wait, what, you mean that Jamestown was here first? Yes, Jamestown was here first. If you're here with me in North Carolina, I cannot recommend enough to go to something like two and a half, or three, well, more like four or five hour journey to the north to visit the Jamestown colony, it is well worth your time. Um, it's a beautiful location and it can teach you more than I can just you know, trying to do in a 20 minute podcast. All right, next time we're going to continue by looking at uh, uh, some other people who were colonizing at this, this particular moment and uh, see what their thoughts are about the circumstances they're in. See you then. <laughs>